0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to That Spooky early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast.
2: Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: ASMR. Do you want to hear it? Sure. Hi everyone, welcome to that Spooky. I'm Johnny. I'm Tyler. And this is a weekly podcast that talks about serial killers the way that you talk about your ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Ooh, trash talking. Yeah, speaking of trash talking, we just want to apologize to everybody that had to bear the brunt of the transphobic trolls that found our Instagram page last week. So, long story short, we posted an image on the day that Trump's trans military ban got passed. It said trans people are not a burden. And of course, in the grand tradition of the internet, once you post anything that has any kind of a social justice slant trolls will find it and they will make horrible toxic fucking comments and they will try to incite anger in people and essentially that's what it did so we woke up in the morning we look at our phones and we're like oh my god there are a lot of comments on this post about the trans military ban and like the day before we had seen a lot of really supportive people coming out because you spooky bitches are great folks yeah so anyway we expected to go on and see everybody holding hands and supporting each other unfortunately while we saw were a bunch of troll accounts trying to fuck with people who listen to the podcast and engage with our Instagram. So we really want to apologize to that. As soon as we became aware of it, we deleted all that shit. We reached out to some of you and apologized ourselves to those of you who we didn't reach out to. We want to say thank you for holding your ground. Thank you for being an ally. And we'd love to be able to say that it's not going to happen again. But unfortunately, the reality is that when you stand up and you talk about this kind of stuff on the internet, you're bound to get a few assholes that slide into your comments and just decide to blossom so that's all the life that we want to give to that to those of you who had to deal with the bullshit we apologize and just know that in the future we're going to continue to talk about this shit we're going to continue to be vocal allies and we will just continue to block these assholes as they come to our page because unfortunately it just comes with the territory oh and p.s the trans military ban bullshit so 180 let's talk about drag race for two minutes yes okay so we just had all stars for episode seven i've been talking a lot you take the wheel tyler highlights lowlights
3: my highlight even though maybe it was the most cringy moment of the entire show was club 96 i just thought this shit was funny as fuck
0: what was your favorite part about it Club 96. So just kind of like how it leaned into being like irreverent
3: and stupid. (laughs) Exactly. I just love irreverence stupidity. It's my brand.
0: (laughs) I would have to say that my highlight was just kind of the theme of the episode in general. I love the whole club thing. It totally appeals to what they have to do as drag queens. It was a great reason to finally have Suzanne Barsh in the flesh on Drag Race. And it brought us the inspiration for Latrice's kick-ass club runway. Oh, hell yeah. Oh my God, with with that high ponytail made of balloons. It was everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a lot of good that can be done in this world with a high ponytail, even more so when it's made of purple.
3: Balloons. Yes. Lowlights? So for me, the lowlight was kind of seeing Manila regress back into that zany, over-the-top character that she puts on that I've always found kind of off putting about Manila. Mm-hmm. I just feel like she doesn't need to go there. She goes 150 when she only needs to go 100. So I just wish she would have reeled it back a little bit because I find she's at her best when she's just being herself.
0: Yeah, when she can just kind of like settle into herself and not perform it
3: as much. Yeah. So how about you? What was your lowlight of the episode?
0: I would have to say that my low light it was kind of weird I mean this is the thing about life baby there are positives and negatives and everything I loved the idea that Monique was going for with like a nod to Josephine Baker but the negative side of it is that like that's the first Josephine Baker banana dress that we've seen on the drag race runway and it was
3: that one yeah it's a good point she kind of looked like a hula girl on the dash of a car that's been there since like 1996 yeah a hula girl
0: past her prime but like I, Nancy Drew did a little bit and I saw that the designer of the outfit actually posted a picture of the original thing and it didn't have bananas on it and she kind of commended Monique for adding them but it just made me kind of go aha of course this wasn't what the outfit was originally designed for and that's why it was just confusing to look at on the runway so yeah it was a low point but at least it gave us Michelle Visage saying no Safine Baker that was the pun of the episode
3: true and another Plus side, it probably educated some of the children on who Josephine Baker is. Yeah, that's the nice thing about this
0: show. It's like sometimes queens are able to introduce like thousands of people to pop culture figures that they would have never known about. For sure. Yeah. Speaking of drag race, before we get away from this, we also need to acknowledge that we just got a queen's announcement for season eleven, baby.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I just want to say, straight out the gate, Evie Audley to win. Yes, 100. Mm-hmm. We've been following Evie Audley on social media for a little while now, and we absolutely love her. She's fierce as fuck, and we basically shit ourselves when we saw her name announced in the crop of queens for the upcoming season.
3: Yeah, for sure. We always stand an art weirdo. Yeah. So, aside from Evie, who are we rooting for? Oh, girl. Silky Nutmeg Ganache. Yes. Yes. She is everything. Who else do we like? Nina West. Oh, yes. Nina West. Yes. And of course, Brooklyn Heights. Oh, yes. The queen of maple syrup. I know. The queen of beavers. The queen of moose. The queen of
0: geese. Surprise, bitch. They got a Canadian in the cut. Hey. We love it. We saw Brooklyn perform like a year ago? Two years ago? Two years ago. And she... Brought the fucking house down. Yeah, she can dip it and do it. Yeah, she can flip Mama, so I'm excited to see her on the show. And I don't mean this to sound any kind of way, but I'm really excited to see her lip sync for her life at some point. For sure. You know what I mean? Because she can bring it to the party. Yeah. So, yeah, I think all that is to say we are super excited for Drag Race Season 11. Yes. Are there any other queens that you want to mention? No. Okay, can't wait. Glad to see Miss Vangie back. Hope she doesn't say Miss Vangie 40 fucking times an episode. Hopefully it's not brown cow stunning. I know, right? That would really be the -ah ooh-ah-ah sensation, wouldn't it? So we just can't wait to soak it up. Okay, so before we get into it this week, I just want to bring up something from the news. Okay. Today in Ghost Sex. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, Well, it's actually not ghost sex. It's more so ghost divorce. Oh, bitch. Amethyst? No, not Amethyst. Today, we're going to be talking about Amanda Sparrow, Large Teague. Okay. Too many names. Yeah. Basically, Amanda married a 300-year-old ghost pirate about two and a half, three years ago now, and everything seemed to be going okay, I guess, but unfortunately, the relationship has ended, and she is going to be not only the first woman in the UK and Ireland to have married a ghost but now she's going to be the first woman to divorce
3: a ghost. Oh, bitch, she's getting all the titles.
0: Yeah, so I just want to run through some facts real quickly. Amanda Sparrow Large Teague is a former Jack Sparrow impersonator, although she did say on her Facebook page for her impersonation persona that she hasn't done it in two years, and she has no intention of doing it in the future.
3: Okay, so she dressed up like a pirate and was married to a pirate ghost.
0: Yeah, and actually, kind of like the physical physical embodiment of her husband is this painting of Jack Sparrow. So mm-hmm. it's pretty on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's pretty much married to a Johnny Depp character. But hey, I'd rather be married to a Johnny Depp character than married to Johnny Depp. Know what I'm saying? 100%. And I just want to throw this out there right now. She is gorgeous. She looks like a character from a Fellini film. She's got like beautiful black hair that she usually has in an updo, like a smoky eye, like a strong lip. Into it? Yeah, and she's got like a very witchy vibe. She self-identifies as a witch and a spiritual teacher. So, like, I'm not knocking Amanda Sparrow Large Teague the person. I'm just reporting on the facts as she has delivered to the media. Right. So, she met the ghost John Teague a while ago. Basically, she was in a room and she noticed a f- energy that she had never encountered before. Now, she a medium, so she's pretty used to contacting spirits, but this is one that she's never run into before, and she started to talk to him. She introduces herself, and he basically starts to talk back, and she doesn't necessarily believe it at first, but then he gives her some, like, historical facts that she then went on and researched, and she was like, oh, this guy's the real deal. Okay, I dig it. Okay. Yeah, so basically she started to develop feelings for him around Christmas of 2016, which is pretty good, because she identifies as demisexual. so the whole deal is, she would not contact consummate the relationship until she had, like, an emotional attachment to this person. Okay. So, basically she says she's not like her friends that will just go around and fuck any ghost and then like go and fuck <laughs> another ghost. Yeah. No, wh- and I... What?! what? <laughs> Okay. okay. I don't question her commitment. I just want to know who these women are going around fucking ghosts. I don't know, but Amanda is the level-headed one in the group. So, now the deal is, once these feelings were developed, Amanda was basically like, oh my God, well, I guess we should get married. Now, there was nothing that legally said that you couldn't, but you needed both parties to be consenting. So, she found a medium who could contact her boyfriend in, like, an official way, and she got him to agree to the marriage ceremony. Whoa, that's legit. Yeah, well, that shows dedication, honey. Mm -hmm, That's true love. Yeah, Amanda was on board from day one. So the deal is they get married on a pirate ship on international waters, which is like really sexy, love a theme. (laughs) Yeah, of course they would. Yeah, and for a physical embodiment of John Teague, the pirate ghost that's 300 years old, they had a candle. So basically she put the ring on a candle. It was this whole thing. It was lovely. Not a problem. But kind of a problem because from day one there were issues that Amanda was noticing. Like her wedding day was not the best of days. Her dress got puked on by somebody. (laughs) Well, I mean, they got married on the high seas, so, you know, seasickness. I 100% agree with that. I will say, though, I do feel for her. Nobody wants their wedding clothes soiled on their wedding day. Well, hey. Yeah, especially by puke. That's not cute. Yeah. So, anyway, shit's not really going right from day one, but they kind of trudge through the relationship. But, unfortunately, taste and charm only gets you so far. Fucking in missionary only gets you so far, because supposedly that was the best way to do it, with spiritual sexual encounters. She said you can't. And do like a cowgirl situation but you don't necessarily get it right yeah it is what it is santa dealio is the relationship really starts to hit the rocks amanda starts to feel physically drained and after time she's like he's using me and it's not just like for her money not just for her house not just for her like cachet socially he's actually kind of using her as a host oh. so yeah this is pretty nefarious on john's part so basically amanda is like no 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 i'm an independent and a woman. I'm not going to take this shit. Mm-hmm. Divorcing his ghost ass. Yes. So she's trying to find a way to kind of like disembark from this relationship with this ghost. Find a way to disconnect. Like hopefully he doesn't try to like inhabit her. But she does say she is prepared to take this divorce to an exorcist if need be. I was going to ask if that's how she'd do it. And you know what? Like I think that this might be the start of something new. Like every divorce proceeding in court should have an exorcist involved. Just in case. You never know. So we're going to follow this. Our heart is with him Amanda Sparrow, Large Teague. No one ever loves to lose a relationship, especially like a 300-year-old ghost pirate. Like, that's a special love to come across. You know what I
3: mean? <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's one in a million.
0: Yeah, like, when was the last time that you cowgirled a 300-year-old ghost pirate? Unfortunately, never. Yeah, especially one that looked like Johnny Depp. Anyway, that's all that I have for today in Ghost Love. I have an oopsie poopsie this week. Okay. So my thing isn't so much a correction as it is just like an addition. Basically, when we tell these spooky ooky stories, we tend to repeat the names of like some really shitty people. And with the Heaven's Gate story that I told last week, there was just so much information. I failed to mention the names of the cult members that we lost. And even if we can't fully tell the story of the victims when we're talking about these topics, we do like to say everyone's name. So hold on tight. We're just going to go through a list of names. These are the people that were lost in the Heaven's Gate tragedy. And we already know Marshall Applewhite was one of them, so whatever. Dana Tracy Abreo, Robert John Arancio, Raymond Allen Bowers, LaDonna Ann Brigato, Margaret Jane Bull, Cheryl Elaine Butcher, Michael Howard Carrier, Suzanne Sylvia McWilliams-Cook. John Michael Craig, Betty Eldry Deal, Erica Ernst, Alfonso Ricardo Foster, Larry Jackson Gale, Charles Edward Humphrey, Darwin Lee Johnson, Julia Elmira Lamontang, Jackie Opal Garrity Leonard, Jeffrey Howard Lewis, Gail Renee Mader, Stephen Terry McCarter, Joel Peter McCormick, Marion Yvonne McCurdy Hill, David Jeffrey Moore, Nancy Diane Nelson, Norma Jean Brandy Nelson, Robert Leon Nichols, Thomas Alva Nichols, Suzanne Elizabeth Nora Jenkins Pop, Lindley Earhart Pease, Lucy Ava Pacho, Margaret Ella Field Richter, Judith Ann Wilbur Roland, Michael Barr Sando, Brian Allen Schaff, Joyce Angela Fisvik Scala, Gary Jordan St. Louis, Susan Francis Storm, Denise June Thurman, David Cabot von Sendaren and Gordon Thomas Welsh. So those were the 38 people who were found with Marshall Applewhite on March 26, 1997, who were all part of the Heavenscape away team.
3: Well, thanks for taking the time to do that, Johnny. It's pretty important to say their names.
0: Yeah, it's so easy for people just to kind of like write the whole thing off as just like a whole bunch of crazy people who killed themselves to go to space. But like ultimately, those were all people that had families. Those are all people that have final resting spots. And yeah, they just deserve to be honored when telling this story. Absolutely. Cool. So, Transphobes, drag race, ghost sex, oopsie poopsies We're done with spooky gay bullshit Spooky gay bullshit is done It's finished, it's over Bye You're going first this week, right? Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah, you've got a bit of a
3: dark one, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, this one is going to be a little bit heavy, a little bit intense. It is going to go pretty deep into some gross domestic violence. So if anybody doesn't want to hear that, you can definitely skip ahead to Johnny's story. We will put the timestamp in the description of this episode. Now a warning. Yeah. Sorry, girl. So this week I'm going to be talking about a little-known cult called the Ant Hill Kids. Ooh, who is she? Who is she? Who are they? So they were a cult that operated for about 12 years here in Canada. They existed in Quebec, and they existed in Ontario and they were run by a class-ass a-hole, Ro Thério. So I guess the best way to start this story is with the grand dame herself, Ro Thério. So Ro Thério was born on May 16th in 1947. He grew up in a predominantly Christian household in a small Quebec town called Thetford Mines. He was the second child of seven and the oldest boy to his father Ysant and his mother Perriette Théro. Ro was a smart child. He enjoyed school and studied hard up until the seventh grade when he was forced to drop out because no local schools in the area actually went beyond seventh grade. So it was like, you were in seventh grade and you were done. Whoa, set the bar low. Hey. Rose's father by trade was a laborer and a devoutly religious man, and he was a member of the group called the White berets They were like an offshoot of Catholicism.
0: Like berets, like hair berets or berets? Oh, maybe berets. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm going to go with berets.
3: Yes, because they wore it. And they probably didn't have
0: barrettes. (laughs) No. I would have loved that, though, if it's just, like, a militia with just,
3: like, cute little white butterfly clips. Yeah. That would have been so cute. Okay. So... Berets, The white berets. So between Mass and his father's forced door-to-door white beret literature distribution campaigns, Roe developed an abiding hatred for Catholicism in particular and organized religion in general early on in his life. You just hate your dad. You don't hate religion. Yeah, you just don't like those white berets.
0: It's okay. It's not a look for everyone. He's like, even after Labor Day, Dad? Jesus.
3: Yeah, bury that. So white berets aside, Roe led a pretty simple and carefree adolescence. However, he was a little piece of shit, so he learned early on that complaining about the shortcomings of his upbringing was a great way to get sympathy from others. So, pairing this with his need for attention, Roe was prone to telling lies about his childhood, how his father and his parents abused him and mistreated him. He was like, I was forced into being a child star. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to wear the flippers, Mom.
0: I said, I don't want to be Shirley Temple anymore.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it was very that. So, neither was to say, he was a little bit alienated from his family, but he found fulfillment in other ways. So he was a highly charismatic person. He commanded attention wherever he went. He was a showboat, and he often had no problems making connections with other people. Sounds like a cult leader. Maybe. In 1967, Ro met Francis Grenier, a girl from the next town over. They moved together to Montreal, and over the next few years, she gave him two sons. So, Roe Jr. and Francois. So during this time, Roe Sr., developed some severe ulcers, which had to be exercised surgically. And later, this developed in abdominal pain and complications from the surgery. The persistent discomfort of his digestive system fostered a certain irritability on Thoreau's part, so he became obsessed with medicine and started to teach himself a great deal about the human anatomy. Oh, so he became a self-taught doctor. Yeah, he's like Dr. Phil. Always a good move. Yeah, nothing could ever go wrong. So after recovering and getting out of the hospital... Rowe decided to move his family back to his hometown in Thetford Mines and began developing his skills with woodworking. It was at this time that Rowe began to develop a drinking problem, turning heavily to alcohol as a way to cope with his chronic pain. Furthermore, Rowe began to use his amateur wood sculpting sales as an excuse to travel to Quebec City on the weekends to have affairs with women, and there he met a woman named Giselle. Eventually Thoreau's finances gave way and the local credit union repossessed his house in Thetford Mines. After that, his wife, Francine, was like, bye, bitch, and left Roe alone. Roe, though, wasn't bothered because that just advanced his relationship with Giselle, who he met in Quebec City. It was also around this time that Roe discovered the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So the Adventist, ministered by Pierre Seda, met in a local motel room every Saturday, and Roque was there with bells on. He was their most devoted follower, and he began following Adventist nutritional diets and quit drinking. Wow,
0: this church at an hourly motel was really changing his life. Right? I wonder if the beds vibrated if you put a quarter in them. Yeah, it's the only church in town with mirrors on the ceiling.
3: Yeah, it was very that. So, Roe was the grand dame of the Adventist meetings, and this actually started to unsettle other Adventists. He was too boastful, and he kind of irritated everybody. They're like, um, if he didn't forget, pride's a sin. But Roe wasn't bothered because he was doing his own thing. He started to develop an interest in the Old Testament, which had strict codes of masculine authority. He was also fascinated with the apocalypse, with its message of violent retribution for sin in the end times and the division of the human race into the saved and the damned. Super cute shit. Right? Like, great hobbies. Love it. So glad you're giving up woodworking for this. Yes, he actually did, because to make money, Roe began selling Adventist literature door to door, which he proved to be pretty good at. So good that that Zeta actually began to give him workshops on quitting smoking to teach to followers. Oh, he's a sneaky boy. He is. And just like selling the books, he proved to be pretty good at teaching these classes as well. By 1977, he had amassed for himself a number of followers.
0: And they were all super irritable because they were all on like day three and four of quitting cold turkey.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So moving back to this group of followers, the majority of them were quite young. There was Solange Bouillard, 21, Chantal Lebray, 19, Francine Laflemme, 18, Nicole Rule, Maurice, 18, Josie Peltlier, 20, Jacques Fissette in his mid-20s, Claude Olliette. 24, Jacques Guerreau 24, and his wife Marcy Grenier 23, and their six month old baby girl. So like a sexy 20-something year old French-Canadian cult. <laughs> exactly. Well, they did actually have some looks, but we're going to get into that in a little bit. Okay. So all of these people plus Ro began hanging around at Giselle's apartment. So Giselle is still like chilling with Rowe. Most of the women who were in the group still lived with their parents. So most of the time the whole group would pile into Giselle's small apartment and sleep on the couch floor and wherever there is space like a good cult very that so thoreau believed that god had entrusted him with a special mission to build a better world in preparation for the impending apocalypse followed by the dawning of the new world cute
2: whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com.
3: Because of this belief, Thoreau encouraged them all to drop out of college. After all, Christ was coming soon and there wasn't much point to learning new skills to get by in a world that was already doomed. He's like, I know
0: you're all really into psychology right now, but the end times are coming. Yeah, so put
3: those books down and get ready for the ends. So as this group got closer, Giselle started to get jealous of the attention Roe would receive from the female followers. But as he had expressed interest in becoming a priest and had committed to total celibacy, she came to regard her jealousy as absurd, even if she realized it wouldn't take very much for Thoreau to seduce any of the women. The group's initial goal was to offer detoxification services across Quebec. Most of the individuals who went around believed that this project would bring new meaning to their lives. As the group grew closer to Roe, Adventist ministers began to fear that the group were more dedicated to Roe himself than they were to the church probably correct so in 1977 Roe and his followers attended an Adventist retreat on Lake Rizeau in the woods of Muskoka Ontario here Roe met Gabrielle Lavallee now at the time Gabrielle was a trained nurse looking for a purpose in life she was lost depressed and on the brink of suicide but meeting Roe and hearing him speak over the weekend gave her some hope during this retreat, the natural scenery of the Lake Rizzo apparently made a huge impression on Roe. In fact, at one point during the retreat, Ro went hiking by himself and climbed up on a rocky outcropping. It was here that he said he had a vision in which the sky was lit up with a white radiance and the voice of God told him that the outcropping on which Roe was standing was a holy place. This was the first incident of what would become a ruling element in the lives of those who chose to fall over all that element being chit-chatting with god wow
0: as soon as you said that he went for a solo hike and went up to the top of a mountain i was about to cut you off and say and he had a vision (laughs) episode 17 and i'm just getting witchier. right you are a cult master what can i say these boring white men who think their magic are pretty transparent
3: (laughs) very that so shortly after returning from the retreat Rowe convinced his followers to leave the city and move 40 miles to St. Marie. There, they would move into a two-story house and open an alternative medicine clinic called the Healthy Living Clinic. They based their practice around faith healing and herbal remedies. Oh, so they ran into snake oil and bullshit. Totally. They were real good at selling that snake oil, honey. Love it. Yeah, because the clinic was actually relatively successful, even though many of the followers had to sell everything they owned to help fund the business,
0: they're like, we're just really dedicated to doing psychic surgery.
3: Right? And you know, all tea, the world's about to
0: end, so it's cool. Yeah, so keep pulling those chicken livers out of people's tummies and charge them $50 an
3: hour for it. Bam. So, okay, remember how we said cute uniforms? Mm-hmm. Well, here they are. Roe commissioned uniforms for all of his followers. For the women, he ordered them to wear green ankle length tunics. And for the men, beige tunics. Moo-moos for everyone. Moo-moos no. for everyone, even for him. But his was dark brown, just to ensure that he was to be set apart from the rest. Yeah, he's the biggest piece of shit, so he gets to wear the darkest brown. <laughs> yeah. So as I was saying, this clinic was actually doing pretty well. It was making money and attracting more followers. Many of these followers were women who were drawn to Rose's charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. Mm-hmm. And now, because Roe was getting even more attention from women, Giselle started to get jealous all over again and decided to propose to Roe. Roe accepted her proposal and they were married in January 1978. However, this wedding would prove to be more for show to come off as a more devout man to the Seventh Day Adventists. So fast-forwarding to March 1978, a man by the name of Eau Claire fell in with the group. His wife, Geraldine, was suffering from leukemia at the time and undergoing treatment in a hospital in Quebec City. After arguing with doctors over the amount of medication she was being issued, Roe was able to convince Eau Claire to release Geraldine from the hospital and bring her to the Healthy Living Clinic for treatment. Now, what did Roe prescribe as treatment for Geraldine's leukemia? Grape juice and organic food. Fuck him. Yeah. So, unsurprisingly, just one week after being admitted into the Healthy Living Clinic, Geraldine died. And they were all sent to prison. The end, right? Sadly, no. It just gets worse. When Geraldine died, Roe actually told his followers that he had brought her back to life momentarily by kissing her on the lips. However, he said, and I quote... You know, when God wants people, he takes them. It was Geraldine's time. He watched Sleeping Beauty too many times as a kid. Right. And as much as I love the aesthetic of Sleeping Beauty is a problematic as fuck fairy tale. Okay, so when the news of Geraldine's death made it back to the Seventh-day Adventist church, they decided to excommunicate Roe from the church altogether. And without the financial support from the church, the commune was forced to close down the clinic shortly after good yeah hooray and after being excommunicated from the church Rowe's following dwindled slightly but around a dozen loyal followers remained so at this point roe was like not bothered he had a dedicated following and a reinforced resentment towards organized religion And so on June 5th, 1978, a few members talked about exploring the Gaspé region in eastern Quebec to find a new home. He's like, it's all right, everybody. Now we just have more tunics to go around between everyone. Yeah, very that. They have one for each day of the week now. Yeah, it's not a problem. It's cute. So on July 9th, 1978, the group settled in an isolated area of the forest in Gaspé and called their settlement the Eternal Mountain. And two days later, the group began to build a a chalet. Cue the survivor theme music. Yeah. But it's a chalet, so it's like a more upscale survivor. Right? It's fancy survivor. It's like glamping. It's like, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Completely. Okay, so on Eternal Mountain in Gaspé is where Roe began to preach more heavily the end of days. He said that they himself and his followers were in the wilderness to prove themselves worthy of the new world and to be spared by God as chosen saved ones in the end of days. Roe prophesied Doomsday to occur Through giant hail Earthquakes And thunderstorms And would take place On February 17th 1979 So just a few months In the future Yeah so just enough To keep everybody On their toes Correct Roe would continue To say that To achieve divinity And survive the apocalypse That it was necessary For all commune members To cut off all contact With their family And their friends And unfortunately The followers obliged
0: Tale as old as time Song as old does rhyme, being in a cult. <laughs> you nailed a goal. Cool. Thanks. I did lighting for Alan Menken once, and I think his talent rubbed off on me. I
3: think so. I mean, if I closed my eyes, I'd never know. I know, right? I'm basically a legend and an icon. Yeah. So, Rose followers worked tirelessly on the construction of their new home. Followers would spend up to 17 hours a day working, and anyone who objected was subjected to more work or less Roe himself, of course, did not help with the build, citing that the chronic pain from his ulcers as the reason why he could not. And also he would explain that he was the spiritual guide and that was so much more important. He's like, yeah, do you really want your Lord and Savior to get a splinter? Yeah, he was like, my tummy hurts and there are voices in my head, so I'm just going to chill. So eventually the cabin was completed. The completion of the cabin, Roe declared a miracle. And to celebrate, he assigned biblical names to everyone in the commune, referring to them as his disciples. Members were asked to draw names from a hat such as Cain... Judah, Gideon, Rachel, Shaw, Thean, Saloma, Elon, Keturah, and Ahab, and Roe himself decided, baby. Y'all can call me Moses. Beom, 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 beom. So now that their home was built, Ro, now Moses, set forth an order that all marriages that existed previously within the commune were to be dissolved and that all nine women were to become his wives. Fuck you, Moses. Mm hmm. Fuck you. So hard. Giselle herself, his actual wife, was really unhappy with this new arrangement and, pregnant with his son, threatened to leave. However, when she did try to leave, Rowe chased her down through the wilderness, grabbed her, threw her onto the ground, choked her, and pulled her back to the settlement, and locked her in a room for two days straight. Ladies, I'm boiling. What the fuck? Yeah. True colors, shining through, and they are the color of shit. Unfortunately, it's going to get a lot worse before it's all over. I hate this guy. Yeah. It wasn't cute. Now, this was going on at the end of 1978. Do we know what else happened at the end of 1978? Jonestown. Yes, exactly. On November 18, 1978, the Jonestown Massacre occurred. Now, this tragedy really caused a lot of alarm amongst the family members who knew that they had loved ones Out in the woods on this mountain with this man who had forced them to cut communication. Yeah, same deal as Heaven's Gate, actually. Exactly. So these family members, along with the Seventh day Adventist Church, rallied to get police involvement in helping them to find out what was going on. Police decided to follow up and approach Roe for an interview. Roe happily obliged, and after his assessment, he was declared a shining example of a peaceful leader, and the commune was viewed as a democracy. So, after passing this assessment, Roe was free to return to Eternal Mountain. And I bet they just wrote, Boys Will Be Boys, on the report. Right? He was a good old boy. Ugh. Running the commune proved to be very stressful for Roe, and so he slowly began to turn to drinking starting at first with communion wines, but then it got to a point where he was basically drunk all the fucking time. At this time, he began to forego his Adventist diet. As a whole, they really didn't have that much food, they were basically only able to eat what they were able to grow. So a majority of the cult members survived on very little food and not a lot of produce. Ro declared this form of suffering necessary in order to be saved by God because they could not seem greedy. Yeah, he's like, Oh, you have to be ascetics. Yeah, you have to be, and you have to suffer. Which, why Roe himself would eat larger meals than everybody else. He would say that with his stomach ulcer and his chronic pain, the experiences he received from eating too much food was his own form of suffering. It truly is my cross to bear. And like, yeah, girl, like this is typical cult leader bullshit. This sounds just like Jim Jones. This sounds very similar to Marshall Applewhite. Yeah, bitch, it's cult leader 101. You get this guy a Rolls Royce. You get him some diamond
0: encrusted watches. His muumuu's probably made with like a four-way stretch material so it can double as a ceremonial eating dress, you know? (laughs)
3: Yeah, it's very
0: that. He's
3: special. He is so special. So as the weeks went by, Rose Sermons became sloppy. And as he fell further into alcoholism, he started to abuse his followers more and more. For example, if someone were ever to fall asleep during one of his long sermons, which being starved and sleep deprived was pretty common, Roe would hit them with a the club to wake them up. At one point, a woman had two more pancakes than she was allotted, and when Roe found out, he punched her in the stomach, breaking two of her ribs. She was pregnant at the time. What the fuck? In spite of all of this kind of abuse, though, his followers were devout. They continued to confess their sins to him and wrote letters to him expressing their undying love. And on January 3rd, 1979, Moses, or Roe, fathered his first child in the commune. And it's worth noting that in the ensuing 12 years more than 20 children were born to five women in the group, and Roe was the father of most of them. Who the fuck wants to make a copy of that? Right? And, like, we'll put pictures on Instagram. Who wasn't that cute? Yeah, fuck your doo-doo-moo-moo. Yeah, hashtag doo-doo-moo-moo. <laughs> okay, so as winter approached, so did Doomsday. But February 17th, 1979, came and went with no catastrophic events, whoops. Oopsie poopsie. No big deal though, because Roe just explained to his disciples that God had indicated the date to him but that nothing was certain. And he went on to add that one second in the life of God could be 40 years in the life of man. And inversely, one second on earth could be 40 years in God's life. Thus, the most likely explanation was that there had been a miscalculation. And God is just a few seconds late and you're being an impatient little bitch. That's right. The member were not troubled by this explanation however because they were thoroughly brainwashed yeah and they were lightheaded all the time and probably just wanted him to shut up exactly there's actually interviews with some of the surviving members and they basically talk about it as just that they were like prisoners of their own mind because they were so deprived of all nutrition, sleep, just all comforts and all basic
0: necessities. And you had some dumbass mansplaining to you 16 hours a day, so you're like,
3: okay, as long as he doesn't hit me. Exactly. They lived in fear, but in spite of that, they continued to pursue their goal to assist Ro in his divine mission. The explanation that Ro gave for the lack of doomsday, however, did not sit well with one of his followers, Maurice Grenier, and she wanted to leave. Grenier happened to be one of the folks that Rowe despised the most so one day Rowe told her legal husband Jacques that she must be punished for trying to leave and instructed Jacques to cut off one of her toes with an axe fuck you at first though Jacques ignored this order from Rowe, but Rowe began to taunt him by attacking his masculinity he would tell Jacques that if he wanted to be a man he would have to learn to teach a woman a lesson no mama, mama. no 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 no, 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 no. No, no no, mm-hmm. no, 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 You take that toxic masculinity somewhere else. Get that shit
0: out of here. Yeah, you know what? Like, you don't need to be that kind of man. You can be a different kind of man. You don't need to be cutting off people's toes. Yeah, you could be a good man. You could be a good person.
3: Again, Jacques really didn't want to do it, but Ro would later threaten to take off all of her toes himself if Jacques did not agree to remove one. So eventually Jacques succumbed to the order and took off one of Grenier's toes. So this happens, the commune stays intact, and life goes on. But in April of 1979, the parents of one of the women at the commune had issued a court order to have their daughter forcibly removed and undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Yes, family. Yes, fam. So police went up to the mountain, but Roe forced them away. How do you do that? I don't know, like a magic spell or
0: something. He's like, I'm sorry, no, you cannot cross this line until you pay the toll a kiss.
3: Yeah, exactly. Or the police were like, okay, guy in a moo-moo. They're like, okay, do doo moo-moo,
0: maybe we'll make out later.
3: Yeah, well, they did come back later because Roe was arrested for obstruction of justice and forced to take another psych evaluation, which he successfully passed. The doctors were convinced that Roe had actually saved the people in his commune from addiction. To cigarettes? To cigarettes. And, like, here he was convincing psychologists that he was doing a good thing like do not underestimate the power that this motherfucker had to manipulate and charm people he's like a canadian Svengali. yeah it's gross so he passed his evaluation and by april 27th 1979 he was able to return to eternal mountain Ego tripping, Roe increasingly viewed himself as all powerful. He even believed he had powers of a shaman and a healer, and he started to force treatments on members who were sick. In one case, he gave an enema using warm wine to cure the illness of one of his disciples. One of the children in the group, named Ezekiel, was actually beaten by another member and injured. And to heal him, Roe or Moses, assisted by Gabrielle Lavallee, injected rubbing alcohol into the child's stomach and partially excised the child's foreskin. Two days later, after this operation, on March 23rd, 1981, the child died. Died. Duh. And after this, again, with the assistance of Gabrielle, Moses castrated the man who had beaten the child, believing that this would purify the aggressor. What the fuck? Mm Mm-hmm. And now fast forward to November 12th, 1981, the police showed up on the commune again. They questioned some of the members about an altercation that had taken place between the members and some lumberjacks. Like... That's pretty fucking Canadian, let's just say. Yeah, very much so. Fast forward to December 9th, 1981. The police returned to the commune after the member who had been castrated, and I couldn't find out what their name was, escaped the commune and told them his story. The police returned to Eternal Mountain and arrested four members, including Roe, for Ezekiel's death. On December 18th, they were charged with criminal responsibility for the child's death. Now, in addition to this, Gabrielle Lavallee was accused of having deliberately assisted Moses or Roe during the castration and that as a nurse, she should have known that the procedure could be dangerous. Sometime previously, however, Gabrielle's own newborn child had been set outside by Roe into the freezing cold weather after it wouldn't stop crying. Oh no. When the child was checked on hours later by another commune member and mothers in the commune were never allowed to look after their own children that they birthed, they realized that the child was dead. An autopsy report of the baby would indicate that it died of sudden infant death syndrome, so no convictions were ever pursued in the death of the infant. My
0: eye legitimately just twitched because I'm holding in so many... Feelings and opinions and swear words right now.
3: Baby, let them all out because this guy is trash. Yeah. We have a man who was castrated and two dead children.
0: It'll come out at some point. Trust me, it'll be scary. Fair enough. I'll probably throw this cup at you.
3: Oh, great. Please don't. Okay, so fast forwarding a little bit more to December 23rd, Judge Jean-Roe Roy sent the disciples of the group an eviction notice and on January 18th, 1982, the members who were still living in the commune were evicted by forest rangers and they moved into nearby housing later on that year september 28, 1982 the four accused members were found guilty of illegally practicing medicine causing the death of young ezekiel they all received jail sentences ranging from nine months to one year. Too short of a time. Yep, it definitely was. And being the egomaniac that Rowe was, he didn't just sit around in prison. He actually wrote a book about the group's life in the Gaspé Forest on top of Eternal Mountain. He's like, great, time to center myself, a bed to
0: sleep on, warm clothes, a chance to self-mythologize, you know, all the good
3: shit. Yep. Exactly. He made it work. And now this would have presumably been the end of the commune. Unfortunately, this was not the case. He's like Madonna. He just keeps reinventing himself. Yeah. And he gets shittier and shittier every fucking time. So on May 1st, 1984, Roe was paroled from jail. During his two years in prison, many devout followers stayed by his side, living in the nearby area so that they could visit him often. When Roe was released, the disciples had thought that perhaps they would get a home together in Quebec, but Roe had different ideas. He wanted a brand new cabin. The original cabin on Eternal Mountain had been torched and dismantled by authorities, so they couldn't go back there. And ultimately, Roe decided that the group would leave Quebec and relocate to Burnt River, Ontario. Now, having lived in Quebec a majority of their lives none of Roe's disciples spoke English. So when they left French-speaking Quebec for English-speaking Ontario, Roe being the only English speaker had effectively isolated his followers further from outsider influences. Wow, it's almost like he planned it. Right? He had no idea. By late May of 1984 construction had started on the newest cabin and similarly the disciples worked long, hard hours approximately 17 to 18 hours a day. At this time, four of the women were pregnant, but were not spared any of the strenuous labor. Of course, because the Messiah could not possibly get a sliver. Oh, no, absolutely not. So when construction was completed, they had built a large cabin with a kitchen, a bakery, a sugar shack, a smokehouse, a root cellar, and a stone sanctuary for Roe to commune with God. So he had his own talking room. And it was on this new commune that Roe established a new hierarchy. Ro decided to have two groups of women. Level one, whom he found more favorable, and level two, who he found less desirable. So he was hot or nodding these fucking women. Wow, he just keeps proving himself time and time again as an asshole. Are we surprised? No. Now, get this. Renier, the woman whose toe had been cut off by Rowe's will, was still in the commune and was delegated to the second group. So she never left.
0: No, and he's
3: like, mm, sorry. Right. You'd be hotter with that toe. Right. He actually started to declare that she had the mark of the devil, insignia 666. And in explaining this to Jacques, her husband, Jacques was ordered to beat her regularly in order to save her soul. Rowe also made a declaration that members were not allowed to share relations or even speak outside of his presence. If they were to do so, they were expected to confess their sins to Roe and be punished accordingly. Wow. You have to build him a house and- And you're not allowed to talk. This is great. Yeah, not quite. But with the facilities that the commune built, they were more or less self-sufficient, but they did at times struggle to get by. So, Roe had a great idea. He would order commune members to go into nearby towns to steal items that they could not acquire themselves. Followers tasked with this job would go into town wearing specially lined coats with deep pockets. But, as a holy man, Roe forbid himself from participating in the thefts. Though, real tea, the only reason why he wasn't is because he didn't want to risk violating his probation. Exactly, he's terrified. Yeah, he was an established shitbag already. Eventually, the commune's activities became known by the townspeople, and they were effectively banned from ever entering town again. So further isolated. So, being isolated from town, the commune began to resort on selling baked goods on the side of the highway in order to get by. Roe would determine how much they needed to sell, and if a follower were to come up short and not sell enough to bake goods, they were punished. It was at this point as well that Roe named the commune calling them the Ant Hill kids because of their ant-like work ethic.
0: Yeah, and it's doubly shitty because, like, who would really want to buy treats off the side of the highway from a bunch of tired people in (laughs) moo-moos? Right. Like, they're not going to be selling that much. No,
3: they ain't going to be selling, like, hotcakes. Especially when they don't speak
0: the language that everyone else speaks. So, yeah, it's just a recipe for disaster.
3: Very that. So, unfortunately, this is where things start to get way worse. Oh. So, Rogue continued his drinking habits, and as he succumbed more and more to his alcoholism, he became increasingly more violent. He's like, yeah, this has been working out well for me. May as well go deeper. Why not? At times, Roe would have the women in the commune strip naked and fight for his affection for the night. At other times, Roe would have the men in the commune strip naked and direct the women to beat them mercilessly. For the kids, Roe would have them pin one another to a tree and throw rocks at each other. Roe would- sometimes order children to be held over a roaring fire for misbehavior. In some cases, Roe would have mothers bludgeon their own children with rocks and blunt objects. He would spy on followers, and when he caught them doing something they were not supposed to do, he would later confront them, telling them that God informed them of their wrongdoings and punish them. Ro would punish followers further by beating them, forcing them to break their own legs or the legs of each other's, removing toes and removing teeth. He would force followers to sit on lit stoves and eat feces and dead mice. At times, Ro would suspend members from the ceiling. Once upside down, Ro or other members would be forced to to defecate on them. Them. What the fuck? There seemed to be no end to the extreme cruelty Ro would enact on his followers. And in his sober moments, which typically only ever happened when the weather was mildly favorable, Ro would cry and plead to God in front of the commune, begging God to stop using him to enact these harsh punishments, inciting sympathy from cult members. He's like, I'm a big shitty baby, God. Exactly. The anthill kids were so brainwashed by Roe that no... No one in the commune understood that they were being recklessly abused. No, they're just like, King, shitty baby, we love you. It's true, because they all believed that they were being punished for their sins, and they felt that they had to have retribution for whenever the apocalypse would come. No, 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 no. Now, outside of all of this abuse, cult members were instructed to never go to the hospital for medical attention, and that Roe was responsible responsible for all of their medical care. Roe began to perform amateur surgeries and procedures on his followers. Roe circumcised a majority of the male followers and children and would often purify members by pumping their stomachs with ethanol. This level of abuse would carry on throughout the 1980s and no one dared to leave even when social services came in 1987 to remove the children. When given the opportunity by social services, not a single parent chose to leave the commune with their children. Holy fuck. Now it gets worse. Worse. No. On September 29th, 1988, commune member Solange Bouillard began to complain of an upset stomach. Ro laid her on the kitchen table where he performed all of his procedures. She was given no anesthesia before Rowe would begin punching her in the stomach. Next he performed a crude enema on Solange with molasses and olive oil. After he sliced open her abdomen, he ripped off a part of her intestine with his bare hands. Rowe made another member, Gabrielle Lavallee, stitch her up using needles and thread and had another woman shove a tube down her throat and blow air into her stomach stomach. Boulard died the next day from the damages inflicted from these procedures. But claiming to have the power of resurrection, Roe bore a hole into Bouliard's skull with the drill and then had every male member along with himself. No, ejaculate no, 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 into the cavity. No, 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 no. And her body was buried a short distance from the Ant Hill Kids commune. Her body was exhumed two to three times and Roe kept a small fragment of her bone tied around his neck, concealed in his beard. The commune would carry on and held onto this dark secret. On November 5th, 1988, Gabrielle Lavallee was punished for low pastry sales, and Roe forcibly removed eight of her teeth. After this abuse, Gabrielle fled, but returned a few days later. And following this episode, Gabrielle left the group a few different times. In May 1989, she fled the commune again and stayed with her brother. She admitted to her brother that she was afraid of Roe, but could not imagine life Without him Eventually she returned Upon her return Ro noticed that One of her fingers Was paralyzed And he insisted He needed to examine it And after he examined it He determined That he would need To remove her hand To avoid The spread of gangrene But instead Ro removed Her entire Arm. This guy is so fucking extra in every sense of the term. Very that. But this is the end. In 1989, Gabrielle fled the commune after this mutilation occurred. She contacted authorities immediately and effectively dissolving the Ant Hill kids. Provincial authorities had long held suspicions against Roe, for quite some time, but because the commune was officially registered as a church, officials were legally unable to investigate the adults and could not do much except ensure the welfare of the children, which they did in 1987. Roe was arrested trying to flee the United States with a few commune members and he was quickly found guilty of assault for the amputation of Lavallee's arm and received a sentence of 12 years imprisonment. After his arrest, a vast majority of the cult followers abandoned Roe. Thank you. The cat but during his imprisonment, he fathered another four children with remaining female members during conjugal visits. Lavalley's report allowed further investigation into Roe's actions, exposing the wider abuse at the commune and eventually Solange Bouillard's murder. In 1993, Roe pleaded guilty to second-degree murder for the death of Solange Bouillard and was sentenced to life imprisonment. In 2000, Roe was transferred to Dorchester Penitentiary, a medium security prison in Dorchester, New Brunswick. In 2002, he was rejected for parole as he was considered too high a risk to reoffend and he never applied again. In 2009, controversy over Roe made headlines after he tried to sell his artwork to United States based website murderauction.com. However, his artwork was refused to leave the prison. Finally, in 2011, Roe died in prison after being stabbed in the neck by a convicted murderer. Deserved. Bye, girl. Bye. Bye, bitch. I'm really glad that you said that he died because I was going to say
0: if he was still around, I'm going to start sending him letters. I am going to catfish that motherfucker. I want to get in his head and ruin his life. I am that bitch. I will
3: create fake Facebook profiles. I will get in your head. Totally. Now, you know what? Like, I've read a lot about cults over the years, but this one is just astonishingly fucked up.
0: Yeah, I've never heard of this one, and I'm pretty sure the reason is that nobody wants to fucking recite that story of brutality.
3: It's very that it's it's rough. There are a few documentaries on YouTube, one that actually features Gabrielle Lavelle telling her story from her experience. She has taken it and she has done the best thing that she can with it. She gives motivational speeches to universities and colleges and schools. She's written literature in regards to it. She's tried to use her experience as a teaching tool for others. Furthermore, there's a book called Savage Messiah that really goes deep, deep, deep into this story. And there is also a movie made in 2002 about Gabrielle Lavallee's experience specifically. If you want to learn more, there's not that much more to learn, but you can check out those things. The documentary with Gabrielle Lavallee is called Very Bad Men. It's worth a watch just to get her first-hand accounts because, again, these were people who were just victims of abuse. Manipulation that went on for way, way, way too long.
0: Totally. Well, you got me. Never heard of that one before. You're welcome. Yeah, I didn't say thank you. So, this week, I've got one that's a little bit lighter. In fact, I can guarantee that nobody dies in this one. Hooray. Yeah, I'm doing a haunting this week. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, so let's get I ready for it. some ghosty, ghosty, ghosty. Yes, I want it, I want it, I want it. All right. So today I'm going to be talking about the haunting of Summerwind Mansion. Ooh, sounds beautiful. I know, right? Very rich, very palatial. It's actually located on like a little bit of a private island. Ooh la la. It's In Wisconsin, oh yeah, so in West (laughs) Bay Lake, Wisconsin, near Land of Lakes, home of the butter, it's like a two-story, twenty-room Victorian-era mansion. It was remodeled in 1916. It's also known as Lamont House. It basically looks like Grey Gardens. Cute. So if you had a rich, eccentric, invalid cousin, this would be the place that they would be living. Love it. I do have a few of those. Yeah, but who doesn't? Yeah, and the best part is, much like Grey Gardens, we will be encountering pet raccoons. Yay! So, summer of 1969. Hey, Brian Adams. Very that. This is when a lady named Ginger Henshaw first sees Summerwood. She's visiting a friend in the area who suggests that they go see the old haunted house. Okay. And Gingy is like, sure, why not? They drive by it. And at this point, the mansion has been abandoned for about 40 years already. Wow. Yeah, and when Ginger arrives, she says that she loved it immediately. So she said she basically had to have it. She decided at the point that she first... Saw it. She said that she wanted it in the worst way. That's real intense. Yeah, she wanted to fuck that house. Yeah. Which, oddly enough, is the name of my new HG TV show. Fuck that house? Yeah, fuck that house with Johnny, right? <laughs> but is it like, ooh, fuck that house, or it's like, fuck that house? I don't know, it could be either. That's the beauty of fuck oh. that house with Johnny. Love it. Yeah, be nice, you might get a guest spot. So, according to Ginger, she basically felt sorry for the house. So, it was totally like a Beauty and the Beast situation. Yeah. So, Ginger is the mother of four young children. She's recently been remarried to a guy named Arnold. They'd moved around a lot at this point. So basically she saw Summerwind as a great opportunity for her family to have a landing spot. Sure. She saw great potential in the house. She was like, I don't see a rundown Victorian mansion. I see a homestead. But the problem is, everyone is basically like, Gingy girl, don't do it. It's haunted. Right.
3: Now, am I safe to say that Ginge Ginge is a bit of a spooky
0: bitch? 100%. Because her response to this was, sure, it's haunted. I guess I will live in a haunted house then. Work, girl. Yeah. Mic drop, line of gasoline on the ground, turn around, throw your cigarette into that gas, watch it burn, walk away.
3: Mama's a nihilist.
0: Exactly. <laughs> the Beatles just broke up and she doesn't give a fuck anymore. So 1969, Ginger buys the house. She's super excited to show her family. She brings all four kids and Arnold there. Her husband, Arnold, immediately is like, yes, Gingy, I see the potential in this home. He runs a construction company. So he's kind of the guy to have on your side. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're like, it's a total fixer upper. So they arrive there. Family's all stoked, except nine year old April. So she basically says that while her family saw it as like a beautiful, old mansion with a lot of potential. She, in her nine-year-old truthfulness, saw it as a huge, dingy, no-paint-decrepit-ass home. <laughs> Basically, she was like, we're gonna live here. Well, like, spot the lie. Exactly. None. So, immediately, April is like, mm I don't have a good vibe. But the family moves in within a month of that first visit. They're like whole hog in the house.
3: Right, and as we learned very early on in this podcast, no one listens to kids.
0: No, no one ever listens to kids, and this is the problem. So, April just has to shut her mouth and toe the line they move into the house gingy and arnold go ahead and start renovating they go ham they're painting the baseboards they're re-wallpapering they're fixing the mantles
3: all that shit Are they putting hay on any of the walls?
0: No, this is a little pre-trading spaces, and Hildy Santo Tomas hasn't graced the world with her brilliance yet. Right. So Arnold and Ginger are trying to find locals to help with the heavy lifting and, like, all the menial work. Very cult leader-y of them. Very. Problem is nobody from the community wants to help out. Well, actually, I should say, they all say, sure, I'll do it for a few bucks, and then they tell them the address, and they're like, mm, no. Wow, no one wanted to fuck with it. Exactly. So nobody wanted to help. And they would be buying things from people in town, like buy, sell, trade shit. People would just show up, drop whatever the Henshaws had bought in the driveway, and be like, uh, just get me the money somehow. Peace. Sweet. Yeah, nobody wanted to come near the house. From there, they reached out to contractors and more, like, professional people to help them with the renovations. And even they would, like, sign on to the job and be like, sure, I'll do some cement work. They would tell them that it's Summerwind Mansion. And even even these professionals would be like, mm, maybe not, try to call me back in a year. We might be able to book something at that time, but I'm just really busy.
3: Wow. Yeah. Now, the deal breaker with this house would be just that. Because, like, how are you going to order pizza? I know, right? And there's straight white people in the 60s. They're not
0: used to having people say no to them and denying them service. True that. They're like, why is this happening to me? (laughs) So one day during renovations, Ginger is going through a bedroom closet. I guess it has old belongings left in it. Regardless, she says that she finds blueprints for the house. Cute. Yeah, so they're like the blueprints from the renovations that happened in 1916. She unrolls them and then notices a peace pipe. Hmm. Yeah, just like all good ghost stories happen. And I will say, when I was watching a little documentary about this whole thing, the moment that Ginger said that she found that, I almost closed my computer. I was like, of course, you're going to fucking say that your house was built on a burial ground. You're going to do all this colonial bullshit. It's going to be a 100 aboriginal people that are for some reason coming from for your dumb white ass. You know what I mean? (laughs) I could just see the writing on the wall, but we stay on. From that day on, Ginger is just kind of like, ooh, this is a little bit spooky ooky, but I'm not sure what she does with the peace pipe whatever. Deal is though from that day forward, Ginger feels this kind of like unbreakable urge to restore the house to its original state.
3: Oh. Yeah,
0: she said it's as if some force was guiding her and she became like really neurotic about getting it right. She remembers going through 11 different paint colors to match the original color of the baseboards. Wow. She said that she felt like she was on an assignment. So, there's also a story from this time when everything's good and they're doing renovations where supposedly they find a crawl space in one of the upstairs bedrooms. Because, hey, remember 20 rooms. Hard to keep track of them all. Sure. Turns out one of them has this crazy-ass crawl space. Arnold can't get into it, so one of the kids ends up going into it. <laughs> kid in the crawl space finds a pile of bones and a skull with black hair still attached to it. No, ma'am! Exactly. And you know what they do? They don't call the cops. Mm -mm. They leave the bones in there. They get the daughter out of there. They seal it up and they don't think about it again. Excuse me? I know, right?
3: Wow, these people are super white.
0: Yeah, it's actually one of the Ten Commandments of Waspiness. So, people say from this point forward, this is kind of where the spook ookie Ookie shit really started to ramp up. Understandable, you find a pile of bones in your house, you don't do shit with it, and you seal it back up, you're inviting some paranormal shit to start happening to you. Yeah, spirit's gonna get mad. Yeah, think about this reasonably, people. So, deal is, they decide to stay in the house. They're renovating, everything's cool. As Ginger is fixating more and more on getting the house back to a 1916 condition, Arnold is starting to disconnect a little bit more and more from his work. Feels very Amityville, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So he would suddenly start to wander around the house and like not finishing his tasks. And basically after like a few weeks, it just kind of devolves into him walking around the house in this kind of weird catatonic state. So Jinji would be like doing her shit, painting the baseboards, having an anxiety attack about the wallpaper. yeah. And he would just be like standing behind her, not communicating. And then she would notice him and then he would just start wandering off. And then he would be in another room, just kind of like standing there looking at the wall just throughout the day this is what he would do. I really don't like that. That sounds scary as fuck. I know right? So from this point on the family starts to report some really weird shit happening in the house so Ginger remembers being in the dining room kind of setting stuff up turning around and the dining room chairs would be out of place. Other things start moving on their own. No one seeing it move specifically but it was all that shit where like you come back into a room and everything's set in a different way. Right. So on top of that April the nine year old says that she gets this feeling that no matter where you are in the house she felt like she was being watched and she says that all of her siblings started to feel this too. So the kids were really starting to tune in that something was happening. Right. Ginger not so much. She's in complete denial Arnold couldn't care less. And the activity for Ginger, the non-believer, starts to ramp up a little bit. So not only is she finding stuff misplaced now, she's also hearing creaks behind her when she's in the upstairs hallway. And sometimes when she's crossing through the upstairs hallway, she sees shadowy figures kind of moving through the rooms out of the corner of her eye. Yeah, so it's really kind of creepy stuff, but Ginger is firmly planted in her denial.
3: Right, I mean, she's invested in this house, she's invested in all of these renovations. Like, it would be hard to not be in denial.
0: Yeah, and she has these four kids. She's recently remarried. She's excited to finally have a place that they can call home. And she feels drawn to this house. So at this point, she's just kind of diving further into the renovations. Weeks go by, and Arnold starts to disconnect more. And his personality really starts to take a downward turn. He stopped going to work altogether, and he would just sit at home, and, like, sleep all day and then basically stay up all night playing the Hammond organ that they had. What the fuck? Yeah, so Arnold basically just became obsessed with playing this organ whenever he was awake, which is, like, great. You're not talking to anybody. You're not contributing to the work, and now you're making everyone listen to your shitty music. And, like, he was keeping the kids up. He was keeping Ginger up. Like, it wasn't just, like, he was going off into one of the 20 rooms and quietly playing his organ. He was, like, down Downstairs in the family room, just like honking away on that thing. Right. And like, how does
3: one quietly play the organ anyway? One does not.
0: And also, Arnold starts to develop a hair trigger temper. So he would just start randomly screaming over the slightest provocation. And he would start yelling at Ginger about opening the master bedroom window. And like, it started to become this thing. And Ginger remembers she was like, I specifically was not opening this window because he was yelling at me so much about it. Right. But every time, Arnold would go up into the master bedroom, this window would be open. So ultimately, Ginger had to nail the window shut just to shut him the fuck up. Damn. After that, Arnold just goes full catatonic. It doesn't really talk outside of yelling. And he's just continuing this behavior of just like wandering through the house in this kind of catatonic state. Now, all T, what they kind of have come to believe is that Arnold wasn't just like walking around the house being an asshole they think that he was walking around the house because he was transfixed with something that no one else could see. Because sometimes they would think that they could hear him talking to someone or something. Right. But they can never connect it with anything. So it seemed like Arnold was like obsessed with something that was like pulling him through the house. Right. And then a little while later, one day Ginger is alone in the house. She's walking up the staircase and she hears her name spoken by a deep strong male voice behind her she turns around to see who it is and there's nobody there but at this point she's telling herself there's nothing going on it's just her imagination whatever Mm -hmm. she continues up the stairs she's in the upstairs hallway and then she hears the disembodied voice echoing through the home again (sighs) and she's getting really freaked out
3: now here's the tea a 20 room home no one needs that and this is the reason why no one needs that whether or not this was a ghost, this could just be a person that found an open window and decided to crawl into this giant home. Like, I'm very happy here in our bachelor apartment because I can see every corner and every inch at all times, honey.
0: Totally, and we live a very cute little modular minimal life, and I am kind of of the Wendy Williams school of having an apartment with one door to come in and out of and you need to be able to see that door at all times because the killer is always there. Yes. Yes. So Ginger is alone. She's walking upstairs. She hears this voice. She's really kind of freaked out. She starts checking the room's nothing. She hears the voice again behind her as she's walking down the hall. She turns around and sees an apparition in the hallway. Ooh. It's like a misty kind of like entity that's just kind of hanging there in the air and then it dissipates. Ginger cannot believe what she sees. But from this point forward she is convinced there is something haunting her home. Now they still haven't been in the house for that long Arnold all of a sudden has just gone into this like blind rage. The kids said it was almost as if he was possessed. One day, the kid's pet raccoon escapes. Arnold is screaming at the top of his lungs, losing his mind.
3: No,
2: wait. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled
3: workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders.
2: VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career.
3: The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore
2: more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. When did the kids get a pet
0: raccoon? I don't know. It was just kind of like a fact of life for these people. They're like, oh, the raccoon. Right. Came with the house. Yeah, whatever. That's Blinky. Okay. So, anyway, Arnold is like obsessed with this. He is not just pissed that their pet got away, he is like, fuck you, kids. Fuck your raccoon. You know what you have to do since you want to be badass little bitches and have a raccoon? You've got to go into the forest and find that raccoon, which is pretty shady if you ask me, because it's like, what if they find a different raccoon? Right, and raccoons ain't gentle creatures. No, mama, you're setting that kid up to have rabies. So, he tells the kids no one sleeps until he finds the raccoon. He wants it. Whoa. And they found it. Wow. I know. Great, right? And then Arnold, just to, like, prove his point, killed the raccoon. What the fuck? Yeah, because he's a complete and total piece of shit, and he just had a point to prove. Oh. My. God. I know, right? It's like, wow, Arnold, you're really batting a thousand. You're making everyone listen to your shitty music. You're not contributing to anything. You've become a total asshole, and you killed the family pet. So glad we brought you into this family. Yeah. Yeah, so Ginger is completely struggling to keep things normal. She invites a couple friends over. She's like, oh, maybe adding more people to the mix will chill things out. I don't blame her. She's just trying to get a little bit of pocket of peace for herself. Sure. So she's there with her friends. Everything's cool. They're in the living room. Ginger goes off into the kitchen to fix some food for them. All of a sudden, she hears her name being spoken over her shoulder, and then she hears a scream coming from the living room. She runs in, and her friends are, like, awestruck. The couple that was sitting on the couch says that they saw a ghostly form in the living room. Whoa. So Ginger is there and says she will never forget the look on their faces, like, completely drained of color, just shocked by what they had saw the two of them run out of the house immediately and they never come back on the grounds. they're like sorry gingy we love you your husband's a bit of a douche But we really don't like your house. Right. Yeah. And this was all the ginger needed to be like, okay, now I really have to do something because it's not just me thinking that I'm seeing ghosts. It's not just my kids seeing shit like my friends who are like logical adults are also seeing this shit happen.
3: Right. And this ghost is just making itself
0: known. Yes. And you know what? Maybe if this ghost was like a cute 300 year old pirate, like a comforting ghost, this could have been a different sexual situation. Yeah. because Arnold is going deeper and deeper into his disconnection. So, like, his organ playing was supposedly getting even more demonic. Right. I know, right? So he's, like, only playing in minor keys. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, going to say. very Anton LaVey. So Ginger basically says that Arnold just seems to be fully possessed by the organ. And in her words, he just went berserk. Like, he lost his business completely. He lost everything. Everything. He was no longer able to make any money. He was just kind of there, playing the organ, screaming at people, killing pets, being Arnie. Oh my God. Yeah. She tries to tell him to stop, and he's basically like, no, this is the only pleasure that I have in life. Which is like, yeah, great. Tell that to your loving, supportive wife who's just trying to fucking help you.
3: And that's the tea. Yeah. He's just upset because he couldn't get pizza delivered.
0: So the cracks are really starting to show. The family is really starting to be affected by all all this, the kids think that it's the house that's doing this to all of them. Right. And according to April, she and her 10-year-old sibling were both considering suicide because it was getting so bad. Whoa. Yeah, she said that she knew that her stepdad hated them and her mother at this point and that wasn't there before. Like, something had just turned like a switch when they entered the house and they just didn't know how to process it.
3: So you have this 9-year-old girl and this 10-year-old girl who are now suicidal because of life in this house
0: yeah it's completely fucked up and ginger doesn't know what to do either she starts spending more time in the woods just to get away from the house she isn't able to cope so she's basically like i would rather spend my time in the scary ass woods than be in that damn house with my husband holy moly Don't blame her, kind of. So they moved in in the summer. As the winter starts to come a little bit closer, as things start to get a little bit more cold, they noticed that the bedrooms weren't getting warm at all, no matter how hard they tried to insulate them or to pump the heat into them. Right. And ultimately, they had to move all of their mattresses into the living room so that they could sleep around the fireplace.
3: I mean, at this point, that is exactly what I would want to be doing in this house anyway. I would not be wanting to sleep alone for a goddamn second. Well, here's the deal though they're all sharing the living room with Arnold
0: and Arnold just straight up isn't talking to them. He's like the worst roommate ever. Right. You know like when they go completely caustic and they just stop talking to everyone and they're like I'm just going to pay my rent and fucking live here until the end of my lease.
3: Right. He's not doing the dishes and he's eating other people's yogurts. Totally. He's brooding. So to make things even worse
0: because his business is gone and because he you know hasn't been able to pay the bills and everything's getting mismanaged. After some time of this mattress on the floor arrangement that electricity in the house just gets cut off altogether. Shit. Yeah, and this is fucking winter. So the kids were having to go get water from the nearby lake because there was like a pump that broke in the house. They didn't have money to fix it. So life in the dream home had basically just started devolving and the whole family was considering selling furniture or any belongings that they had to be able to cover the bills and get the power turned back on and Ginger is so freaked out by Arnold in the whole situation that she starts sleeping with a knife under her pillow. Damn girl. Yeah, so they're at a breaking point. And Ginger is at such a breaking point that she actually calls her father for help. Up until this point, she says that her pride had been getting in the way of her reaching out for help. So she goes to a neighbor's house and calls her father, Ray Bober Sr. Basically, she says to Ray Sr. Bring the camper down, get us, get us the fuck out of here. Right. Grandpa shows up with his RV, saves the day, takes Ginger and the four kids and they boot scoot out of there. They leave Arnold back at the house. The day after Ginger and the girls leave, Arnold leaves. They never hear from him again. Ever? Ever. They didn't say goodbye. There was no closure. Arnold just disappeared. Whoa. Ginger tells her father what happened. He says that he didn't really believe her. Uh, Of course. Yeah, so of According to Ray Sr., he says that he wasn't really into haunted houses or the paranormal. He identifies as a skeptic. Okay. So as they're leaving the house and getting further away, Ginger is just hoping that all of this paranormal shit is out of her life for good. And it would have been. It would have been great, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know, like you're w-
3: out of there. Move on. Right, like Amityville style, buy
0: house. Yeah, buy house, and then your father is saying hi house. Ray Sr. bought the fucking mansion.
3: Why? Like for them? No. Off of
0: them. Okay. And this is the thing. Ray, relative to your situation, listen to your children. Yes, and listen to your children's children. Exactly. But according to Ray, he said that over time he had started to become kind of obsessed with the house. And he felt like the home really needed somebody. He likened it to a wet puppy that needed comfort. Right. And he said that the house almost reached out like it needed someone to comfort it. So... He decided to become the new owner.
3: But that's kind of like Ginger's initial reaction to the house as well, right? She just felt like she needed to be there.
0: Exactly. So the same thing as drawing her father. This is a stunt house. 100%. So Ray Sr. decides to bring his son Ginger's brother, Ray Jr. into the situation. Ray Jr. had just gotten back from Vietnam and basically they wanted like a bit of a father-son project to do. So they got the house. Okay. So Ray had said that architecturally it was like nothing he'd ever seen before. Again, this is like a Victorian mansion. It was renovated in 1916 by some Chicago architecture firm. But supposedly it was like ye old McMansion.
3: Right.
0: Yeah. And Ray Jr. was like really enamored with the place himself. He was kind of picking up on the same vibe that his father and his sister had initially felt about it, just like this place is drawing me in. And they really felt like they could do something nice with the place. So they wanted to turn it into a hotel restaurant. But in the meantime, since Ginger had abandoned it, the place had actually been taken up by some squatters and like teenagers who like to drink in the house, like vandals and shit like that. Right. So the place was kind of worse for wear. But the duo felt like they could take it on. So they've got some basic carpentry and reno skills. They decide that Ray Jr. will live on site in a camper, and then he will just take care of spearheading the renovations during the day. Right. So Ginger's really not happy about this. Her father's basically like, I don't care what you think. I don't care what my grandkids think. You're all telling me this is a horrible idea. We're going to do it anyway. Right. Ray Sr. goes out, tries to hire contractors to work on the house and help with the renovations. Guess what? No one will do it. Exactly. So Ray Jr. is alone on this whole thing. He's living on the RV, on the land. He's doing the renos during the day. The first night that Ray Jr. is on the property, he hears what almost sounds like bears growling. He goes outside of the RV, though, and he's not able to hear any signs of bears. And then he starts to clock that it's not really like a bear growling. It's a little bit more eerie sounding in his words. So he's kind of shook by the whole thing. So the next day. Day two, Ray's working at the house alone, and something happens. Ray flees the house and refuses to tell anyone what actually happened. So something spooked him. He hops in the RV, goes straight to his father, tells him a lie, basically says he broke the lawnmower, broke the chainsaw, can't work anymore for the day. He won't fully explain why he can't do anything else for the day. The father automatically smells bullshit in the air, but he will not budge. So, Ray Sr. doesn't really like that very much. He's kind of questioning what's going on with this house. So, Raymond Sr. decides to put on his Nancy Drew cap. He goes to find this woman named Mrs. Murray who Ginger had bought the house from. I've also heard her referred to as Miss Kiefer in some places, but okay. we'll call her Miss Murray today. Sure. Anyway, she had bought the home from the original owner, Mr. Robert Lamont, who was the guy who renovated it in 1916. Right. So, Mrs. Murray says that when Robert Lamont was living in the house. Around the 1930s, the servants of the home started to say that it was haunted. Mr. and Mrs. Lamont refused to believe the servants. All of a sudden, one night, they're sitting in the dining room of Summerwind Mansion and the basement door, which is located in the dining room, opens up on its own accord. The two of them are just sitting at the table, kind of awestruck, watching this door open. All of a sudden, they see the figure of a man appear in the doorway, like a full entity. Robert Lamont brings out his gun, fires two shots at the man. They go straight through him. Right. The man starts advancing toward them. They run out of the house that night. They completely abandon it. And it laid dormant until Mrs. Murray's family bought it in 19 I guess the family was the key for family, so maybe Mrs. Murray was, like, a married name. Right. But this is ultimately how she was able to acquire it. Now, it stayed dormant. They just rented the property out to visitors. Her entire family refused to go inside. Shit. So Yeah, so they just, like, airbnb beat the place, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and then they sold it to Ginger in 1969 and bada-bing, bada-boom. Now, to fill in the story a little bit, just because I've done a little bit more research, the deal with the Lamonts when they were living at the house leading up to seeing the entity that made them leave, they had actually started to experience stuff like objects moving on their own accord, noises echoing throughout the upstairs hallway, and shadows passing in between the rooms. Right, Exactly what Ginger was going through. So, Raymond Sr. is super intrigued because these stories are overlapping. He is starting to believe Ginger's story at this point. So, Ginger visits Raymond Sr. and tries to convince him to abandon the home completely. He is already drawing up blueprints, though, for further renovations. He is just fully seeing potential in this place. He don't want to let it go. Hires out-of-town contractors to do the work. So according to Ray's Sr., the contractors show up. They start doing their work. All of a sudden, they start reporting that their tools are going missing or ending up in different rooms and that their blueprints are going missing. And to make it even more fucking weird, the contractors are all saying that they would, like, take a measurement of of a room like for doing the floors and stuff like that. Sure. And then all of a sudden when they would go back to actually do the work the measurement that they had written down would not match the actual measurement of the room. And this happened consistently whenever they would measure something for work in any of the rooms in the mansion. And they said it almost felt like the rooms were shifting in size around them. Like the house was playing tricks on them.
3: Oh. It's kind of just like that scene in The Haunting. You remember the original haunting Mm -hmm. when the doors are just like pulsating and moving exactly Mm -hmm. so the crew quits
0: out of fear A little while later in the future, Ginger and Ray Jr. and Sr., let's just call them the Rays, they're all hanging out. Right. Ginger can tell that Ray Jr. is acting super nervous. He's been nail biting a lot. So Ginger is like, oh, hey, girl, I've been practicing hypnosis, so I could probably help out with all this nail biting, right? So Ray Jr. obliges. He's like, do what you want, mama. So he's sitting there on the couch. Ginger holds up a pen in front of his face, tells him to concentrate. After some time, he starts to drift off, she puts him into a sleep state. The next thing Ray Jr. knew, he was completely asleep. She starts to talk about relaxing things in general. She starts to kind of like coax him into this lulled state. Then she starts to talk about the mansion. And as soon as she starts to bring Summer Wind up in conversation, Ray Jr.'s leg starts shaking really hard. And it starts to get even more intense. And then all of a sudden, he's responding to questions but his voice starts to shift and drop. Ooh. Oh, bitch. And then he just starts repeating, I am strong over and over again. His legs are shaking, he's in this sleep state, his voice is demonic, and then all of a sudden April says that it looks like her brother has just dropped out and he's embodied by someone else. Ginger starts asking, where are you? Answer me. And Ray Jr. starts yelling back, I am strong, and then just yelling, my children. And then he starts yelling, you are weak. So he was like admonishing children 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 in his mind saying he is strong, they are weak, all this weird shit. Right. Ginger says that she was sure it wasn't her brother speaking in that moment. And she's absolutely terrified that she may have just opened up something. She sends the kids out of the room. They're watching from around a corner for the rest of the time. Ginger grabs a cross and starts doing the Lord's prayer over her brother there in her father's house. Suddenly his entire body just relaxes and then he snaps back into himself. Now, Ray Jr remembers waking up with a slight headache but nothing else really. He just remembers waking up and everyone around him staring in shock.
3: So he doesn't remember
0: any of this happening? No mama and their father just tries to chalk it all up to an overactive imagination.
3: Of course he would find a reason to explain it away. I
0: know right? Supposedly though they had recorded it on tape deal is i wasn't able to find a recording of it but ray jr says that he hears it and he hears himself saying this stuff about being very old despising weakness despising children and ray has no kids so he's super confused about this right and then supposedly he hears himself say that he has seven children that are all weaklings ray jr is absolutely terrified and with this he decides to finally spill the beans to his father and his sister about what happened in the house.
3: Oh, right,
0: yeah. Yeah, so according to Ray... Day two of renovations, he's alone, working in the house. The night before he'd heard that eerie bear sound, he's already a little bit on edge. But he's upstairs, alone in the house. He's in the hallway, totally alone, and suddenly he hears a sound behind him. It's a creaking sound. He looks, he sees nothing. He calls out who's there. And then all of a sudden he hears his name being growled on the wind. Everything goes quiet. And then he hears two gunshots coming from downstairs. Oh. Yeah, he runs down to the kitchen. He says that he could smell the gunpowder, but he looked around and there was no one there. He said that it had rained the night before. He looked out the windows to see if there were any tracks leading up to the house or anything like that. He only saw his own footprints. So he's completely puzzled. He's in the house. He's trying to figure out how he could have heard this shot sound because it was very distinctly coming from inside. He goes back into the dining room and notices that the door to the basement is now open. Nope. And then he looks and notices two bullet holes in the door. Weird. Yeah, so he's completely rattled. He's heard it, he's smelled it. When he turns around from the door, he sees an entity of a man. And that is the point where Ray ran the fuck out of there. He said that he had never believed any of the stuff that he had heard about the house, but once it happened to him, it just rattled him to his core. And he didn't want to say anything to anyone because he just could not place the experience.
3: Well, like, totally understandable. That would be terrifying as fuck. And you're completely alone. You're completely vulnerable. And you have zero explanation for anything that you're experiencing. And you're like, this ghost has a gun. (laughs) Right? Like,
0: when did ghosts get guns? Yeah, like, there is nothing worse than a ghost with a gat. So the family hears this. They're fucking terrified. Even Ray Sr. is scared. But when he hears this, he starts to remember the story of the Patterson's encounter with the two shots that were fired at the ghost. He explains it to the kids and they're convinced it was the same entity. So Ray Sr. asks his daughter Ginger to hypnotize him. She's down for it. She grabs the pen. He starts to count backward from 10. It's not really working. Ginger has to work a little bit harder, but ultimately she's able to get him to go under. As soon as he goes Goes under, he's back at summer wind shit. Yeah and he's walking around he goes into the basement and like he can't control himself he's just like a passive observer watching himself do this right. Goes into the basement and he hears himself say there's something in there. In his dream he pulls a brick from the wall of the basement back and pulls out a wooden box from behind the brick. So in his dream he pries the box open and he looks inside and he says that he finds a land grant from 17 67 and Ginger asks what the name on it is and he's not able to say what it is. So they get him a pen and a pad of paper. They give it to him. He's sitting there, one in each hand. He takes the pen and starts to maneuver it as if it's a quill in like a pot of ink and he's like dipping it and kind of going through this whole
3: ritual. Right. So it's like he is almost being overtaken by this old-timey spirit that doesn't understand how modern pens work and only understands how to use a quill and ink.
0: Exactly. So he's like living his fantasy back in 1767. Takes this and kind of daintily writes out on the paper Jonathan Carver. Oh girl, we got a name. Finally. So Ginger wakes her father up. Raymond says that he remembers nothing from what had happened because he was just speaking this as it was happening and the kids were remembering it. Right. But now we've got some clues. So Raymond, like the good Nancy Drew that he is, decides to go to the local library. Yes, bitch. Go to the library. Get that knowledge. Exactly, girl. So he finds out that Jonathan Carver was a well known explorer in the 1700s. In fact, from 1766 until 1767, Jonathan Carver was exploring what was to become Wisconsin. Oh. Yeah, so deal is with Jonathan Carver he's like a stuffy old white colonial dude, probably fucked up a lot of indigenous people's lives, but yep. I'm not here to put him on blast. So his crowning achievement was supposedly finding peace between two warring Sioux chiefs when he was staying on the Minnesota River in 66-67 so legend has it though, after Jonathan Carver's death, because he had struck up this peace agreement between these two chiefs, he was supposedly given a parcel of land where summer wind was eventually built. Here's the tea, though, honey. Descendants can't find the paperwork. They can't fully substantiate that claim. Mm -hmm. This is all secrets, mysteries, legends, recipes, whatever. Right. It's all whispers and rumors. Exactly. So Ray Sr. is just taking all this info and he processes everything and he's kind of like, okay, well, I suppose we are being haunted. It feels like the ghosts are probably reaching out to us so that Jonathan Carver can get his land back for what. Reason because I'm having these visions, I should probably try to find a box in the basement wall.
3: Yeah, that would be a good idea.
0: Exactly. So Ray Sr. goes back to the house. He brings his two kids with them, Ray Jr. and Ginger. And according to the kids, they are just like pretty sure they're about to step into a situation that they can't handle. So they've got their crowbars, they've got their flashlights, they're doing their thing. They go into the house. Ray Sr. recalls the spot that he pulled the box from in the dream. Right. They go to that spot in. In the basement And start pulling bricks off the wall Ultimately they find A little space behind one of the bricks When they look in that space They find nothing Shit They close it back up And they start looking through the rest of the house They find nothing Shit They go upstairs to the crawl space That they had found the bones in When Ginger first moved in
3: Bitch yes They
0: open it up They find nothing. No. No bones. No skull with hair attached to it. Nothing.
3: And they knew it was there. They
0: saw it. According to legend. So they're freaked out, but they're also super disappointed.
3: Right, because they thought they were going to get answers. They were Nancy Drew. They were the Hardy Boys. They were going to crack this case. Exactly. Thing is, though, they
0: find nothing in the house. They kind of all get in the car and start driving away, and they all just kind of agree. It feels like they've been chasing this mystery for too long now. So they leave the house, and they never return. Now, the family never really speaks of this again. They sell the house. Fast forward to 1979, Raymond Boeber Sr., publishes his account of the story. So he publishes a book called The Carver Effect, A Paranormal Experience. He does it under a pseudonym. His cover gets blown immediately, though. And according to some people from the area, they actually say that there were never any reports of this being a haunted house until that book was published in
3: 1979. Which, if I'm not mistaken, was around the same time that the Amityville Horror was published. Ding, ding, ding. So in
0: 1980, Life magazine published puts out a photo essay called Terrifying Tales of Nine Haunted Houses. They feature Summer Wind in it. It cements the house as a paranormal hotspot and tourist attraction. In 1985, officials from the town of Land of Lakes try to have the mansion demolished basically because it had been sitting vacant and been used as a squat and a place for teenagers to party. They were unsuccessful. Right. The next year, in 1986, the home is purchased by three local investors who want to turn the house's fortune around they say nothing about how they want to do it but supposedly they just want to bring positivity to the mansion right yeah well their positivity only gets them so far though because on june 19th of 1988 the mansion is struck by lightning numerous times and caught on fire whoa it had been vacant they hadn't started renos yet or anything like that and yeah the whole place just went down now the ruins still exist to this day like it shows up on google maps deal is though they're closed to public so you're are not allowed to go there. And even to this day, people have not been able to find the original deed for the house. So they have the proof of it being renovated by Robert Lamont in 1916. But prior to that, there's like no real paperwork. So they've never been able to substantiate this whole Jonathan Carver thing, like how the land was acquired or how the house was built. It just kind of like appeared and then disappeared. Now the Hinshaw Bober families say that they felt relieved when the house burnt down. Right. basically they never really experienced any paranormal activity after that they all just feel like it was just linked to this house so the day that that was demolished was the day that they felt like this thing was finally released
3: so I guess it's the universe's problem now hey enjoy universe enjoy your lost spirits floating around in space finding new places to haunt and terrorize so that is the story of the haunting
0: of Summerwind Mansion you are fucking welcome
3: actually thank you I love a good haunted house story. I love a good ghost story. And, bitch, you gave us that.
0: Yeah, and I guess we needed a little bit of sunshine after the Ant Hill kids. Oh, hell yeah. So I guess we're at that point in the show where I ask you the age-old question about what we learned today. So, Tyler...
3: What did you learn today? So today I learned everything in moderation. You might want to stay at home all day and stare at the wall. You might want to stay at home all day and play the organ. But if you don't get out of the house and you don't go to work or you just don't do anything, your power is going to get shut off and your family's going to leave you and your life is going to suck. Fair enough.
0: Well, I guess today I learned that if you're ever entering a situation where you're not allowed to choose the color of your own muumu, it's not the situation for you honey like i'm not gonna be sitting here looking like holiday heart just because you want to be the only one with a muumu that pops yeah exactly
3: i mean a muumu is a choice to begin with and it better be a motherfucking choice you better mm-hmm. get to choose what color it is
0: yeah if i can't have two-way mermaid sequence on it i don't want it thank you very much so thanks for joining us everybody episode 17 what a fucking dream what a Right, baby. So if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying us, you can rate us, review us on there. It really helps get the word out. I swear to God, I would not be saying this every week if it were a lie. You can also do that on Spotify or Stitcher or basically whatever podcast app you listen to. Everyone's got their own system. Right? You get to choose. 2019. Can you taste it? And don't forget to hop on over to our Instagram. That's SpookyPod. That's T-H-A-T-S-S-P-O-O-K-Y-P-O-D. You can check out photos from today's show there. You can watch us fight trolls on our social justice posts. And you can watch us be meme warriors as per usual.
3: Yeah, for sure. And you can join the saddest party in the world by following us over on Twitter at That's Spooky Pod. You know, like, we're really bad at Twitter. I'm not going to lie. We're working on it. <laughs> yeah, like, there are a few hundred of you kicking around on Instagram.
0: Let me just tell you, baby, if you want to stand up from the crowd, run on over to Twitter. Yeah. We will notice you right away. There are tumbleweeds going on over there. People are doing drug deals in the light of day because they know the cops aren't driving through town anytime soon. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Yeah,
3: Wild Wild West over on Twitter.
0: Find us. Hey! Speaking of finding us, you can also go over to thatspooky.com. You can get show notes. You can see images. You can listen to episodes. You can read bios. You can do whatever the fuck you want to do. Because it's 2019, and you can taste that sweet freedom, baby.
3: Mm, and don't it taste good? So we are still asking you to send some scary stories to our email. If you have them, we would love to hear them. And you can send them over to thatspookypod at gmail.com. Or if you just want to say hey and give us a Tammy Brown thumbs up, you can email us that too.
0: Yeah, we love hearing from you. Whether you're sliding into our DMs or shooting us an email, we'll take it.
3: Yeah, and I'd also like to take a moment to shout out Jess Merwin. They tipped me off on the Ant Hill Kids. And if you want to see what they are up to they're doing all kinds of cool artistic and creative projects. You can head over to Instagram and follow them at underscore rad underscore babe
0: underscore. Yeah, we absolutely love Jess and they've been a supporter since day one. So thank you so much for that extremely brutal story. Yeah, thanks
3: Jess. Yeah, but all tea, we really appreciate it. Yeah, totally. And if anybody else out there feels so inclined to tip us off on an interesting story we maybe didn't hear about, you can email that to us as well. Totally. So on that note, thank you all so much for listening today we love
0: you very much your hair has so much volume today and it almost looks like you got highlights but i think it's just because your hair it just kind of like gets a little bit lighter in the sun you know what i mean yeah you're so lucky so have a great day and don't forget if you're gonna be a bitch be a spooky bitch bye, bye. hey prime members you can listen to that spooky early and ad free on amazon music download the amazon music app today or you can listen early and ad free with wondery plus in apple
1: podcasts
0: before you go tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey
1: if you're listening to this podcast then chances are good you are a fan of the strange dark and mysterious and if that's true then you're in luck